This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo. Signing off. Whenever a movie becomes a hit, a sequel is all but expected to follow. You need only look to the decade that birthed the blockbuster, the 1970s, to see the progeny of box office success. Dirty Harry, The French Connection, Shaft, The Godfather, The Exorcist, Death Wish, Jaws, The Omen, Star Wars, Star Trek, Grease, Superman, Rocky, Halloween, and even Smokey and the Bandit. Which makes Alien a bit of an anomaly. Released in 1979, Ridley Scott's classic was the 11th biggest global grocer of that decade, and yet 20th Century Fox had no interest in spawning a franchise. New management had come in, and it wasn't until four years later that a sequel was even suggested to the producers, Gordon Carroll, David Guiler and Walter Hill. They began kicking around an idea, a cross between Walter Hill's own Southern Comfort and The Magnificent Seven, when a script landed on Guiler's desk. It had nothing to do with Alien, but it was about a woman fighting a relentless killing machine, and it made Guiler want to meet the man who wrote it. All right, listen. The Terminator's an infiltration unit. Part man, part machine. Underneath it's a hyper-alloy combat chassis. Microprocessor controlled, fully armored, very tough. But outside it's living human tissue. Flesh, skin, hair, blood grown for the cyborgs. At that stage in his career, James Cameron had made only one feature film. Piranha 2. Yes, a sequel to a Jaws ripoff produced by Roger Corman. But Carol, Guiler and Hill felt Cameron could come up with a valid reason to continue their story. After all, Alien had climaxed with Lieutenant Ellen Ripley killing the beast by blowing it out into the vacuum of space. But there were all those unhashed eggs back on the planet. If only they could find an excuse for her return. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them. Right. Not to study. Not to bring back. But to wipe them out. That's the plan. You have my word on it. All right, I'm in. What Cameron did was take another sci-fi idea he had already written, One Cold Mother, and reshaped it. Within a few days, he had written 90 pages of script, and although not yet complete, the producers loved what they read, and at their encouragement, Cameron went on to deliver not only a sequel every bit as brilliant as the original, but also a first. A science fiction, horror action adventure war movie. Where other sequels had settled for just another shark swimming through the waters, or another demon possessing a little girl, Cameron summoned an entire army of xenomorphs. America's involvement in Vietnam had ended just 10 years before, and its iconography can be seen in the film. Which is just one of the many reasons why Aliens deserves to be placed alongside the original as a bona fide classic. Ordinarily, a sequel takes the so-called best bits of the original and either repeats them by way of inflation, or simply gives a variation. But, where Scott's original was a claustrophobic, slow-burning fuse, Cameron's vision was an epic, napalm fueled escalation of terror. He took Lieutenant Ellen Ripley back to the moon planetoid of LV-426, and in so doing, he all but colonised the rock as his own. 
where the atmosphere of Ridley Scott's film was built on an uncertainty, slowly metamorphosing into a traumatising horror that systematically reduced the crew of the Nostromo to one. Cameron took that survivor, a warrant officer, and turned her into a commander-in-chief, an alpha amongst testosterone-fueled marines who may have been drilled in boot camp but were rudely awakened when they found themselves in the front line of combat. Over the course of two and a half hours, Cameron so reimagined Ellen Ripley that she became one of the most influential female characters in all of cinema history. How long after we're declared overdue can we expect a rescue? 17 days. 17 days? Hey, man, I don't want to rain on your parade. We're not going to last 17 hours. Those things are going to come in here just like they did before, and they're going to come in here, and they're going to come in here, and they're going to get us. This little girl survived longer than that with no weapons and no training, right? Although bankrolled with Hollywood money, Ridley Scott had made Alien in England, and crews there had come to consider it a British classic. One of the reasons why Alien was so highly regarded was for the way it looked. Its greasy, sweaty, steam-filled Oscar-nominated sets were the byproduct of a director who had started out as a set designer before working his way up as a director of commercials. And in making Alien, Scott had helped re-establish British crews as amongst the best in the world. So when Cameron arrived to shoot in Pinewood Studios in September 1985, he was met with open scepticism. As far as the locals were concerned, Cameron was too inexperienced to fill the shoes of Ridley Scott. This, even though the previous year, he had written and directed the box office smash, The Terminator. Today, Cameron has a fearsome reputation as a perfectionist, who will not compromise until his vision is met. That reputation now attracts talent to him, but at the time, it repelled people who could not recognise the talent they were working for. The more he pushed, the more the crew pushed back, and things came to a head when he had to fire the director of photography, Dick Bush. But very wisely, he replaced him with Adrian Biddle, who had cut his teeth lighting commercials for, yes, Ridley Scott. Biddle was able to meet Cameron's demands, and the crew eventually came round to appreciate not just who they were dealing with, but what he was trying to realise. Here is the legendary special effects master, Stan Winston. Any Jim Cameron movie is a tough atmosphere. Jim is a very demanding director. Some people are afraid of that. Some people find that a negative. Some people don't like it when directors get upset because you're not doing exactly what they want you to do. Um, I don't. I think that there is, there is a genius of Jim Cameron. I think that he is cursed with a vision. He knows exactly what he wants to see, and it's your job to get it on screen for him. Undoubtedly, Cameron is a master of a certain kind of cinema, but there appears to be a glaring deficiency in his arsenal, and many would argue that it is his dialogue. Never more than functional, it means his characters rarely extend beyond two dimensions. But to leave that critique at just that is to ignore his gifts at tapping into the mythological journeys and archetypes so redolent with mainstream audiences. Instead of layering his characters with Shakespearean complexity, Cameron favours a canvas of clear emotion, namely fear, 
and instilling its essence into action sequences that he pushes beyond mere pyrotechnics, he delivers a realm of kinetic emotions. There is either good or evil in his pictures. Either you care or you are selfish. Either you are loyal or you are treacherous. Either you attack or protect. So, while his dialogue lacks nuance, he is best when he has his characters express themselves through their actions so that he can visualise their feelings. Remember Titanic? Remember the hand on the steam-covered car window? Cameron's films resemble silent movies, where the visual storytelling is so strong and lucid, dialogue is all but unnecessary. You can take whole sequences, or even extend that to the climactic third acts, and understand and feel everything that is going on without a single word being spoken. Just like the masters of the silent era, Cameron tells his stories through movement, montage and music. In a phrase, his films are symphonies of colour and dance. Yet for all that, he is quite nimble in penning memorable one-liners. Get away from her, you bitch! Cameron gravitates around emotive themes, repeatedly focusing on the battle between creation and devastation, between the animus and the anima. And where the Terminator was between mankind and machine, in Aliens, he found a perfect platform for man versus animal, or rather woman against a xenomorph. A rational being capable of empathy against a hostile being unclouded by conscience, remorse or delusions of morality. And tellingly, Cameron pitted one female against another. I say this because on the surface it would appear that Cameron pits the reproductive impulses of women against the destructive urges of men. But that's not really the case. Men are not the enemy. It's just that he never shows a woman as a predator. Instead, he shows a woman as a protector. And standing alongside her is a man equally committed. But at some point, he falls short of the universe's endurance test, and so it is the woman who proves the more resilient. But this has less to do with gender as it does to do with DNA. It's coding at a subatomic level. Survive or die. And it's not so much the individual's death that is far from Cameron's mind, as it is global inhalation. With the exception of Titanic, which itself is about death on a mass scale, every one of his films depicts the threat of nuclear obliteration. So his films are about an indomitable endurance, an affirmation of survival. And the battle for survival divides all worlds into two armies, those who fight to protect and those who fight to destroy. Here is Cameron in interview from 1986. You know, I get a lot of imagery from my own, from my own dreams, and the, the uh, you know, and I find them to be, you know, a cathartic experience and a good inspiration for for imagery and for for concepts and situations and so on. If you think about it, you know, from a from a story standpoint, how is the audience going to relate to this person if they put themselves needlessly into jeopardy again? But the real reason is the cathartic psychological reason. There has to be a, uh, uh, an inner motivation. In a way it goes back to, to people who've been in high stress situations. Uh, it's a fairly well understood bit of human psychology which is uh, when you come that close to death, whatever it is, if it's a car accident or whether you're in, in combat, um, you tend to fixate on that moment in your life and just relive it over and over. 
In Cameron's cosmos, there is a civilian, usually a woman, who is so imbued with a sense of life, love and nurturing, that when faced with seemingly overwhelming destructive forces, she somehow finds the strength to defend not just herself, but those around her. She does not become a soldier, but a guardian. In a word, a word I admit I've made up, Cameron's conflicts are about the civilitary. From Sarah Connor in his two Terminator films, to Ellen Ripley in Aliens, Lindsay Brinkman in The Abyss, Rose de Wiprecator in Titanic, and Nutiri in Avatar, women are the inspiration for James Cameron. <laughs>